amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Victoria Hesford, an Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University in New York. Her book, Feeling Women's Liberation, published by Duke University Press, examines the pivotal year of 1970 by defining the meaning of women's liberation, applying a theory of emotions to the rhetoric of mass media and the response of the movement's participants. Hesford illustrates how our memory of the movement have been formed by either feelings of attachment or disidentification that hide its complexity and heterogeneity. The movement came to represent a radical form of feminism standing against the more staid, liberal feminism of Betty Friedan. Instead of an ideological-driven movement, Esport argues that women's liberation engaged in the politics of emotion. The conjunction of media coverage and participants' experience were mutually constituted in the feminist as lesbian. The media image of the feminist as a guerrilla fighter, subversive and pathological, evoked the lavender menace and the woman-identified woman within the movement. The lesbian became a defining figure who could be used as a psychic weapon against women or denote sexual autonomy and political defiance. Central to her analysis is the fascinating figure of Kate Millett in her 1970 book, Sexual Politics. The media and outing of Millett and the spectacle of her self-fashioning response in the autobiography Flying offers a window into the feeling of betrayal, anger, and depression that propelled the movement, and evidence of its attachment to definitions of socially acceptable femininity. Instead of focusing on what really happened, the triumphs and failures, Hesford looks for how emotions, both social and personal, shape the movement and our memories. Here's my conversation with Victoria Hesford. Now let me introduce you to my author today, Victoria Hesford. Welcome, Victoria. Great to be here. Hello. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Uh, first, I want you to tell us something about your background, where you came from, what you're doing, how you got to this book. Why okay. this book? Um, well, my background is I'm originally from England, and I grew up in the U.K. in the 1980s during the, well, 1980s and uh, early to mid-1990s, through most of Margaret Thatcher's tenure as Prime Minister. So uh, a lot of my experiences growing up had um, 
in relation to feminism were mostly uh, in school and through uh, my friends' parents being actively involved in things like the peace movement, the women's peace movement, um, uh, the, the protests in Greenham Common. And then also another big political event that kind of structured my approach to feminism really was the miners' strike in the mid-1980s, which had a really profound impact on the whole of the UK, um, and especially as children. In fact, it was something that uh, was very much kind of in the air and something that we would watch on television and things like that. So um, I had uh, a sense of the importance of feminism, even though I couldn't clearly articulate it at the time, through the ex- just basically the experience of growing up in the UK in that, at that time. And so when I went to university, I was more than ready to read about feminism and political movements. Um, and I had great teachers when I was an undergraduate at Sussex University. And one of them introduced me to Kate Millett's book, Flying, which came out in 1974. And so when I was reading it in the early 1990s, I thought it was this amazing book. It was full of these really interesting people doing amazing things, like forming uh, consciousness-raising groups, going to lesbian dances, making films in New York, driving you know, these um, great big American cars and just having this amazing time. And I was like, well, if this is what it means to be a feminist, then this is kind of great because it's a fascinating, interesting life. And what struck me there was that my professor at the time said she found the book profoundly depressing and really hard to read. Um, And so it just... I carried that with me, that idea that I could have such uh, opposite reaction to the same book, even though we were both feminists and we were both kind of fascinated by 1970s feminisms and the American women's movement. And so I carried that with me and I read the rest of Millet's books that were in print at that time, including obviously sexual politics. Um, and then I went off to graduate school and I was thinking, you know, I need to write about that. That there's something about these kind of disparate um, feelings and approaches to feminism. Like, and not just kind of half-hearted feelings, but kind of strong feelings either of like kind of um, sort of fascination, um, uh, anger or depression. And I was like, so why did 1970s feminism and women's liberation in particular generate these really strong feelings, either in the affirmative or in the negative? And so this became what I wanted to write about. And it took me a long time to kind of conceptualize uh, how I would do that in a way that would, in my view, do justice to the complexity of feminisms in the 1970s and people's contrasting feelings about them. Now, you you only look at one year, which is this pivotal year of 1970, Um, and you have a very specific approach to what went on that year. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to talk a little bit about your theoretical approach to this. Yeah. Because I see affect theory here. Yes. And But you never really say that uh, right out. I I was looking for you to say that. Yes. So, but, so I knew it's a theory of emotion, 
Yeah. Uh, but tell me, uh, what is your theoretical approach in which, which you look at this uh, period? Right. Well, it's um, it's in in one sense, it's kind of a cultural studies project in that um, I wanted to look at this one year as a moment of conjunction where different forces kind of came together and kind of decisively shifted the terms of what and how people understood the women's movement at that moment. And so those forces were this kind of um, 1970 was the moment when the mainstream media and mainstream politics really started to pay attention in a kind of concerted effort or in a concerted way. It really started to pay attention to feminism. So the ERA was going on, going through um, Congress at that time, as well as all the women's liberation and other feminist actions at the time. So you had this kind of mainstream, uh, popular media interest in the movement. But then you also have, at the same time, an explosion of different feminist groups all over the country who don't necessarily agree with each other, right? They're literally kind of an organically exploding grassroots movement, different interests, different political backgrounds, different kinds of women. And so they don't have a coherent political agenda. That's kind of part of the power of the women's liberation movement at that time. So it's like those two things come together and no one's in control of that, but it produces something. Is this this why you uh, talk about... uh the movement not being an ideological movement, yeah. but, yes. uh, but engaging in the politics of emotion? Yes, yes. I would like for you to really unpack that uh, w- along with your theoretical approach, uh, because this politics of emotion is fascinating. Yeah. Well, so I was influenced by two kind of different approaches to emotion and politics. So the Daniel Gross book on, like, early uh, like 18th century political um, writings and manifestos and how he understood like the power of rhetoric as being absolutely central to the production of any kind of political speech. So I wanted to kind of take up that idea that rhetoric equals emotion equals political speech, like you can't do any of those things without the other. So that's that was one kind of approach. And then the other approach was which I was influenced by uh, Sarah Armour's book, The Politics of Emotion. Um, and what I found useful about her book is that while at the same, she acknowledged that there is a distinction between affect and emotion, that how we kind of come into contact with emotion, uh, or, well, how we come into contact with affect uh, in order to, like, know its effect on us, if you like, is through emotion, right? That we have to kind of find some representative strategy or for us to know what an affect is, and that's when it becomes emotion. And so I wanted to kind of talk about how emotions um, are kind of present in rhetorical figures or images through which people articulate a political imaginary or vision. Yeah, because in your first chapter, you talk about media representations of women's liberation, and you are focusing on just that specific part of the women's movement, the women's liberation movement, the more radical uh, yeah. movement. Yeah. Uh, but the media representations that you talk about seem to be 
very much loaded, emotionally yeah. loaded. Oh, yes. The, yes. The, the words, the images are very much to trigger yeah. trigger certain effects in the public mind yes. about who these women are. Yes. Um, talk about that ch- first chapter. I would like to hear you talk about that for our audience. Well, because um, what I actually did, uh, a very sort of conventional media survey of mainstream uh, media in 1970, and I, which meant I literally looked at every single uh, New York Times edition uh, throughout 1970. I mean, I kind of, you know, looked through my search terms like feminism, uh, women's liberation, that kind of thing. And so I did this kind of acute survey of all these uh, newspaper articles um, and I did it for 1970, but I did it also for 1968, 1969, and then 1972, 71, 72, and 73, I think. Um, and what was striking about looking at that kind of blanket, kind of amount of uh, articles, is that 1970 is really uh, like the moment where the... Uh, the attempt to malign and delegitimize uh, the women's movement, that's when it happened in 1970. So this almost kind of um, exaggerated, um, I would call it almost hysterical reaction to feminism was really apparent in 1970 in a way that was not as apparent in the years before or after. It kind of wanes pretty quickly. So this was a moment where the media for reasons that I wanted to try and figure out, were really concerned and slightly hysterical about what feminism was. Um, so that's so it was a heightened emotional. So what were some of those images and some of the vivid vocabulary that yeah, was used yeah. for women liberationists? Yeah, like they were sick, uh, that there was something wrong with them, like they were um, um Man-hating, you know, this is where the stereotype of the man-hating lesbian comes from, like they're kind of um, uh, emotionally retarded, sexually immature, angry, kind of out to um, destroy families. I mean, that kind of exaggerated idea of some, some deeply dysfunctional, sick, fanatical person. And this is when it all started to kind of really coalesce into a, a stereotype of, fem- of a feminist. And also the whole uh, idea of women's liberation, the, the term liberation was tied into revolutionary movements yeah. that were going on yeah. in other places. So the idea of the feminist as a gorilla. Yeah, yeah. And But they did, this was, I think this is kind of part of the fear that generated the certain hysteria is that for women's liberationists and other feminists, at the time, were explicitly trying to link their movement to, you know, anti-colonial uh, nationalist movements in the American, uh, in South America, in um, uh, Africa, and places like that. And so, I think that was part of what generated the hysteria and the ambivalence: is that these folks were trying to link feminism to those movements, um, some, somewhat successfully somewhat not successfully so they used the but then the, the strategy became to 
treat that attempt to link feminism to these other movements with contempt. And so the, the play on the gorilla, uh, you know, the feminist as a gorilla was really a kind of, kind of contemptuous dismissal of the seriousness of feminism in contrast to other kinds of politics. So it was an attempt to marginalize and dismiss feminism, precisely at the moment when feminists were trying to make those links explicit. Well, what I noticed that was that the media coverage, the media depiction of the feminist, in a way created a response from feminists yeah. in which they became, yeah. in a way, what they were being told they were. Yeah, exactly. So that's the conjunction. Right, so they're interdependent. They feed each other. They feed each other, and it's it's a way of kind of reminding us, I think, this is what I wanted to do, is to remind us that when these kinds of political events and movements happen, um, that they don't necessarily happen through some kind of carefully planned design, <laughs> right? That there isn't just... that. You know, I, I would argue that 1970s feminism, of which women's liberation was a part, were, was transformative in uh, American political life, at least, and I think elsewhere. But it was transformative of American political life in ways that weren't designed right, or planned. Right, because they, because they were having to operate within an environment, and when you yeah. let something out, you don't know what it's going to do. Yeah, exactly. They can't I, control especially for a grassroots movement that explodes, you know, across the country in different communities, different contexts, and without kind of, you know, aligning themselves to an orthodox political party. When you have a movement like that, then it's even more the case that what it becomes cannot be predicted from its sort of emergence, its sudden emergence. And that's part of the power of it. But right. also the reason why we have such mixed feelings towards it now. But this is, uh, but in this uh, narrative, the story that you give, you're really you talk a lot about the emotional aspect yeah. of this. Yeah. That the media is reacting emotionally. The women yeah. are responding. Emo- it's this emo- where yeah. where the any ideology or political agenda sort of gets marginalized yes. and is silenced. By this, all this emotional rhetoric. Yes. Because the fight was not understood to be a fight about clearly articulated political demands like policy changes or laws. I mean, that was part of it, you know. So what emerged out of the second wave era were, you know, what we now have like sexual harassment laws or changes in the rape laws. Um, and things like that. So it's not like legislative gains were not part of the political agenda, but I, I would say that what was different, and this is not just true of feminism in the 1970s, but political movements, uh, especially in the West in that period, were not driven by policy or legislative agendas. They were driven by something else, um, which were... Kind of, which is why they're called the new social movements, right? That kind of driven by an attempt to um, name and define a way of living that was um, felt to be limiting, restrictive, depressing, 
you know, but not something that you could clearly say, we need the vote or we need, you know, it was more something, access yes. to the professions or that kind of thing. It was something more uh, in the gut. Yeah. Or as Betty Friedan said, the problem with no name. And the problem is that when she went on to try and name the problem with no name, it only became a certain problem for certain women, whereas I think we could argue kind of more generally than she did in The Feminine Mystique that the problem with no name was an attempt to kind of suggest what we would now call sexism, which is more a kind of pervasive set of attitudes, dispositions, affects that create a sense of, you know, uh, oppression for women. One of the central uh, images in your book that you derive your book is the feminist as lesbian and how that was constructed right. by media and also how the women's liberation movement used it to right. express certain feelings. Yeah. Not always sexual feelings. No. Mostly not sexual feelings. Right. So talk to me about... Feminism is lesbian. What do you, and also that, something that's associated with that is woman identified woman. Right. Right. So, um, this is what I got from, um, reading Kate Millett's autobiography, Flying, and then using that as a way to kind of read a lot more of the, the material, like the manifestos, the pamphlets, um, the, the, theoretical essays that came out of the 1970, of 1970s feminism. And what I noticed when I started to read more and more and more of it was that, you know, we had these ideas like the term from that period, the personal is political. Um, but also like how family life and sexuality increasingly became uh, the ways in which but feminists, especially within women's liberation, started to articulate where the fight was, where the struggle was for liberation. What, what women need to do to be freer from these kind of pervasive, um, uh, emotional, atmospheric feelings of disenfranchisement, delegitimization was to kind of overhaul the family and to have a more kind of autonomous, kind of freely expressed sexuality of their own. Um, and so the, the increasing concentration of feminist thinking on these things kind of led to the taking up of the feminist as lesbian as a figure that could kind of articulate those ideas or could kind of reduce them into what I call a shorthand notation, right? It became an easily kind of transferable idea or figure through which these more kind of... Um, um, what's the word I would use? More complicated attempts to address things like family life and sexuality could kind of quickly be disseminated and circulated. So she became a useful figure in that sense, I would say, for articulating those ideas or for kind of anchoring them in some kind of image that would then circulate easily. But then she also was like the person they were accused of being. So... Um, in that sense, she becomes a way to respond to that accusation at the same time. So it's kind of a confluence, right? That's part of the conjunction of these two forces coming together create her viability in that moment as a figure who can do things for feminism. So what 
They did use, deployed a lot of images about the lesbian that were longstanding in the culture. Yeah. yeah. So what, uh, unpack that. Who is well, the it, feminist, uh, the lesbian actually? Well, she's, she becomes, the lesbian gets transformed in this moment for better or for worse and for some people for worse. Um, and, but she gets kind of merged into the female political activist of the era. So the image I have in the book that comes from Harper's Magazine, I think, um, uh, and, and also Time Magazine, had the woman with the peasant dress and the Roman sandals and her fist raised. Uh, she's not wearing a bra and her glasses. She's got glasses on but long hair and she's staring kind of, you know, with this grim look on her face into the camera, right? It's a drawing. I mean, she's kind of not what stereotypically in American culture we would recognize a lesbian to be in 1969 or 1970, right? So she's kind of this amalgam of the uh, characteristics associated with a lesbian and the kind of cultural style, the sartorial style of a political protester, a woman political protester. And so she becomes, the feminist lesbian becomes that amalgamation. So she kind of shifts the terms of legibility of uh, lesbianism and the terms of legibility of feminism and becomes a different kind of figure in that moment. So that's how I met, that's part of the conjunction as well. So how does she feed the whole idea of a woman-identified woman? Well, she does not she doesn't. I think this is where she... Um, that's why she's an ambivalent figure for feminism. Um, and that's why we have mixed feelings about her in the present, because uh, she tends to kind of invoke the idea of woman, identified woman. And this is why I kind of talk about how women's liberation kind of produced itself as a white woman's feminism, even though it's politically it didn't necessarily want to do that, but it, ended up producing itself as a white woman's feminism through precisely through the circulation of these kinds of images. And so I think what the lesbian ends up becoming is a sign of a certain kind of um, idea of woman, identified woman, as a sort of homogenous sameness, right, uh, that gets kind of signaled through certain markers of race and class. So the woman-identified woman, um, I don't think it was intended by any means to suggest this, but it ends up signaling uh, the idea of feminism as uh, white and middle class. It's, that would be because a, a black feminist mm-hmm. would identify maybe more closely to race issues. Is this why? Instead of just, and just Instead of just... It wouldn't be woman-identified woman. It might be woman-identifying with her own people. Well, no, I think it's more this kind of amalgamation of two figures that are operating at that time, right? So you have the the kind of more stereotypical characteristics of who a lesbian is. And so if you think about 50s pulp fiction, if you think about kind of butch femme, subcultures that are, you know, around in the 60s and 70s. So people have a, an image of a lesbian that is in, kind of implicitly white, right? So it might be kind of marked by class, but she tends to be 
white in how we imagine who, and I'm talking about generally here in the mass media, how, who we imagine the lesbian to be. We tend to imagine through a white woman. And that could be marked in terms of working class or middle class. And we would have different characteristics for it based on that. So you have that figure, but then you also have the figure of the political, the female political protester. Um, and so we're talking about 1969, 1970 here. And the female political protester also gets figured as white, right? The woman, the 60s look, kind of long hair, Roman sandals. And the figure of the black protester becomes kind of um, understood in relation or opposition to that figure. So when, you know, Angela Davis, you know, because the iconic images of Angela Davis in 1970, she's not figured through her femaleness so much as through her blackness, right? And so she's not allowed to be a woman and black. So it's not right. That's what I'm. That's what I was kind of getting yeah. at. Yeah, yeah, you just said what I was getting at. Yeah. Uh, one of the central characters in in your book that is just it made me realize when you said it is Kate Millett. Of course, mm-hmm. you've already talked about her, but yeah, the fact that she has really been neglected. Yeah. By feminist scholarship and by women's history, she's sort of just she's mentioned. But nobody really goes in depth into her, and you have you've done a great job. I learned a lot about Kate Millett in your <laughs> in your book that I did not know. Yeah. Um, well, she comes to represent something in your in your argument. Yes, and tragic figure. Well, yes, I hope not just tragic, but yeah. So, yeah. talk to me about Kate Millett and what happened to her. I mean. Her individually, her as a person, her as a persona, because she became more than just herself. She became the symbol of things. Yeah. Well, she, um, well, first of all, the reason why she plays this kind of central kind of part in the book is precisely because, for me, she represents that kind of vortex of mixed feelings about women's liberation. Right? This kind of sense that it was a white woman's movement and so kind of exclusionary of other other women. But also the sense that what it meant to be a white feminist within the context of women's liberation was not entirely clear and was in fact going through a kind of strange transformation. Right? Precisely through the accusation, the explicit accusation of lesbianism and the taking up of that accusation by a lot of women in women's liberation. So Kate Millett kind of figures that kind of ambivalent place of white lesbian woman and how do we understand that in terms of a political position to be occupied and from which to make claims. And so I think we don't quite know what to do with that. Um, And we, uh, you know, as a... You know, in terms of mainstream culture, we don't quite know what to do with that. But also in terms of, I would say, feminism, we don't still quite know what to do with that. And so she figures that, right, that she's one of those, what I would call, um, strange kind of singular productions of 1970s feminism that we can't fit, for better or for worse, into a box, that says, oh, she's this kind of feminist or that kind of feminist. She doesn't quite do that. And that's why we don't know, that's why I would say we don't really um, know that much about her or she's not really in our kind of 
feminist knowledge box when we teach feminist um, theory or feminist history in, in the classroom. Would uh, you, for our, our, the sake of our re- uh, listeners, talk a little bit about uh, Kate Millett, how she arrived on the scene, what happened to her, how did she become a feminist, uh, and how did she become yeah. a lesbian, and 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 then her writing of her first book, Sexual Politics, and then yeah. she went on to write Flying, yeah. and that and the process that she went through and how she actually reflects, in a way, in your book, the process that women's liberation was going through. Yeah. Well, so I, first of all, I would recommend people to read Flying because a lot of the information I have about her is from that book. Um, and I have also done some research in uh, the archives at Duke University who've got all her papers. Um, so, yes, so that would is also a, a source. Um, I have uh, only had kind of email exchanges with her, um, so I, you know, I would not presume to speak for her in that sense, but from reading about her life and what she herself has written about her life, um, she was a, I think first and foremost, I think she regarded herself as an artist. I mean, she was a sculptor, um, she was a conceptual artist and a writer, and then she was one of, I think she got a PhD, a first-class PhD from Oxford in English literature. And so she was also an academic. But I think, you know, the, her main love in the 60s was, uh, or what she was really interested in doing was becoming an artist. And so she looked kind of was part of that kind of 60s artistic milieu in downtown Manhattan, um, she had a loft on the Bowery. She knew some of the big players in conceptual art in the early to mid-1960s. She knew Yoko Ono, for example, in Japan. She spent, I think, at least one year, maybe two years in Japan in the mid-1960s and met Yoko Ono in Japan, who was this regarded at that point as this kind of radical, strange uh, woman in Japan. So that's probably why she left to go to New York. Um so she was part of this kind of really interesting, innovative, highly influential artistic milieu in the mid-1960s. Um, she was married to um, a Japanese sculptor for a long time, Fumio, and uh, they, I think, had a real marriage. I think it was a marriage of love and friendship. But she was also someone who, and she says this in Flying, had relationships with women in college, in high school, um, and then after her marriage as well. So I think she always identified as a lesbian um, in her private life. I think she always had relationships with women. Um, and I think it, and she was also always kind of politically active, but she was also someone who became radicalized, like a lot of people, by the events of the late 1960s. And so she was kind of in the moment being politicized rather than already kind of in a kind of established political group or, um, uh, yeah, she wasn't, I wouldn't say she was a socialist feminist, for example. Um, and then she was teaching at Columbia University when the, um, the university locked the students into the, the student building they had occupied. And then 
forcibly tried to um, make them leave, and a lot of students were suspended or t- uh, from the, after that action, and she was one of the teachers who was also suspended um, for taking part in that action. So she was kind of, you know, there in the late 1960s, participating partly because she was in New York, but also because of who she knew in the artistic community and uh, through her teaching stints at Columbia. So she was kind of constantly participating in political events through that those two mill years. And I think she um, that's where her feminism got generated uh, through those experiences. Talk a little bit about her first book. Uh, her main arguments in that book, which are very important to your to your yeah. theoretical work. Yeah. Well, that was a dissertation, probably the first feminist dissertation to be published. Uh, not only the first explicitly feminist dissertation to be published, but published by a mainstream press. So in that sense, it was um, uh, unique. Uh, and it was also a bestseller. It was... Um, something that not only academics read, not only political activists read, but lots of other people read as well. So it was the book that made her famous and helped to make women's liberation um, a national story. Um, And it's a profoundly ambitious book, um, and for that reason problematic, because it kind of, the claims it makes tend to be... um, universalizing and sweeping in ways that, you know, now we might question. Um, But what she tried to account for um, was this idea that at, like, the engine or the motor of all hierarchical relationships and oppressive social relationships, what generated them was what she, the kind of, at the heart of those was the sexual relationship between men and women that has been understood and defined in hierarchical and exploitative terms. So her argument became, and she looked historically in liter- and through, at literature for this, that if we transform sexuality and sexual relationships between men and women, um, then we will be able to change all these other hierarchical and oppressive relationships as well. And it's interesting because her, you talk about how Time Magazine was it that uh, portrayed her as the mouth uh, of feminism, and yeah. yeah. compared to Marx too. Her yes. theory was compared to a Marxist theory, which it wasn't at all. But that's <laughs> right. But the idea that there's one thing that accounts for everything. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's economics or, yeah. in her yeah. case, it was sexual relationships between men and women. Yeah. Um, coitus. It's even more pointed oh. than sexual relations. It's coitus. <laughs> so um, her, the images of her were instantly uh, being reproduced, and yeah. they were of this kind of angry, uh, yeah. Maoish figure. yeah. yeah. Which she really wasn't. She was kind of an eccentric kind of looking, you know, she used to wear these big kind of artistic comic glasses and like kind of slightly hippie-ish clothing. I mean, she was more of an eccentric figure than a sort of serious, scary figure. But they transformed her into that because that was the narrative that they needed 
they needed at the time. Talk to us about the outing, her outing by the media and by the movement itself. And she was sort of put in a really difficult personal situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was married at the time and she was married to someone she loved. I mean, it wasn't just a marriage of convenience. And so I think she was acutely aware. She was also in relationships with women at that time as well. So she had this complicated personal life going on. And I think she felt very um, kind of conflicted about uh, being asked or forced to kind of come out because, A, you know, she had these other people in her life. It wasn't just her. But B, that to come out and say she was a lesbian did not accurately reflect the complexity of her life. Um, it would deny some of it, uh, you know. And so there's that. But there's also the fact that, you know, this was 1970, and she was like a middle-class white lady, albeit eccentric and an artist, but who taught at Columbia, you know. For someone to come out as a lesbian, you know, in Time magazine, for example. I mean, people just didn't do that <laughs> in 1970. So, you know, for her to, like, have that national stage through sexual politics and to be nationally known in 1970 and then to be asked or forced to come out as a lesbian was kind of traumatizing. I mean, because you're suddenly being exposed to a national public, not just a cohort of people interested in what you think politically, as a type of person. And she knew that, but the opening pages of Flying are all about how she was reduced to this kind of stereotype or this, just this, you know, simplistic kind of stigmatized figure. And that it kind of totally eviscerates the complexity and of who she is and her humanity. But it also was being, and she knew this, was being used to dismiss the movement. So she was kind of caught in this impossible situation. But the movement itself, you have a scene where she's forced, basically, by the women in the movement to come out and say it. Yeah, and I understand that because, you know, she's being lauded in Time magazine as writing this really important book. You know, she's like you know, on the front page of Time magazine, right? She's in all these mainstream publications. She's being talked about as this serious author who's written this great book that will advance the feminist cause. And then, but she's also being talked about as being married and, you know, they, they respect, they made her respectable in the first half of 1970. So I can understand that desire to say, tell them what you really like, which is a lot less respectable than that. And so I can say, like, that she was kind of, from their perspective, she was um, taking advantage of the fame for her own kind of glory and not being true to who the women are in the women's movement, who are not nice, middle-class, respectable married ladies, or not many of them. So um, I understand that impetus, but it's also as soon as she declares it, then it becomes a way to reduce both who she is and who the movement is. So that's the, again, it's the conjunction of forces rather than a kind of clear solution to the issues. And part of that, of course, is because the, the women, the feminist, the lesbian became for the women's liberation movement a symbol of resistance, of uh, political resistance, yeah. which actually was created by 
the mainstream media, but yeah. they took it and say, yeah, okay, we're that. We're yeah, we're angry. Yes, we yeah. are. You know, against the system. Yeah, go ahead and yeah. say all those things about us. Yeah, because you're right. Instead of yeah. saying no, we're actually really nice women. Yeah, they took it. Yeah, yeah. So that was the moment. But see, this to me is what is the good part of the conjunction, because in a way they were forced to do that. But in a way, it was this, it was this political moment which allowed them to do it, and they did it. And it did change once and for all some of the ways in which we understand what feminism is, right? That, that, you know, it opened up the possibility that, you know, you can reject completely this idea that you somehow are supposed to be feminine or remain kind of invested in heterosexuality or something like that. So talk a little bit about uh, uh, Kate Millett's second book, Flying. Yeah. Which I've, I have not read, and I'm just like, yeah. just embarrassed that I have not read it because I should read it. <laughs> well, it's out of print for a while. That's probably why. Oh, okay. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if I can get it now. Can I get it now? I think it is in print again now. Yeah. Okay. okay. Tell me about it, that book because it sounds like a mess from what you describe. It is. I mean, but it's, it's an experimental mess. Um, so she decided... And she says this explicitly in the book that she was going to try and uh, record, document her life as she is living it. So she makes this decision after the fallout of being outed in public and kind of being castigated by the movement. And she has this kind of basically what we would call a breakdown after that. And so one of the things she decides to do is to get her life back on track is to write this book because she's living this kind of crazy, busy, activist, artist life in the aftermath of her moment of fame. So she's been asked to go to talks, to colleges, uh, to speak as a representative of women's liberation. So she's constantly traveling. She's constantly meeting new people. She's like kind of partly exhausted. So she's like, I'm going to use this Book to document my life, to give people a sense of like all these new lives that are being created out of these movements, the queer movement and the feminist movement. Like this is what we're doing. This is how we're inventing and creating new lives. So that's the impetus, I think, for the book. But as she, you know, think about documenting your life, you know, for a week or two days. I mean, it's hard to give it shape. <laughs> it's hard to kind of you know, make the decisions what to include, what not to include. So it, be, in a way, it fails as a book because it's this kind of mass of detail. And then I think after the fact of writing it, she tried to shape it through a process of editing, but she doesn't quite succeed. But from my perspective, looking at it as a kind of historical remainder of a certain period of time, this incredibly uh, kind of vibrant archive of a just a person detailing the way they live their life so it's all this stuff about um you know just the day-to-dayness of um you know going to talks doing protests writing negotiating with other feminists um talking to friends all that kind of stuff but there's also this kind of sense of her own, like, trying to figure out who she is in the aftermath of all this stuff. And so it's this 
it's it's kind of um it's kind of like a stream of consciousness book it it is it's not i mean she does try to kind of shape it and define it as a certain traject narrative trajectory but there's a lot of that it's kind of like i would call it like a it's like a written movie a, a badly edited movie that's written down so it's in that sense it's kind of vivid it's image imagistic it's got multiple time frames going on and so it's in that sense it's kind of experimental in its sense of trying to be immediate and impressionistic in terms of what it's trying to capture so, so it's revealing in that sense so the emotions that are expressed in the book because you put so much emphasis on that in your in your own work uh anger frustration depression she has yeah. nervous breakdown all these kinds of things yeah. in a way uh i think you're suggesting are reflective of what was actually happening in the movement Right. So, yeah, for a lot of women, I would think, right, because, you know, you make this commitment to transforming your life. Like, I'm not going to stay at home and do what I was expected to do. I'm going to, you know, sort of commit myself to being a feminist. I'm going to move to a different town or I'm going to start a bookstore with my friends. And so people are trying to create these new lives. Um, that are directly in relation to these political movements. I would say this happened in the gay and lesbian movement as well. Um, and uh, that you, you try to craft these new, new lives and to kind of invent different forms of sociality. And that's incredibly kind of exciting but exhausting and also like, you know, precisely because it is new, you don't have, you know, a custom or a habit that will enable you to just do it, you know. Yeah, I read it from what you were saying as a self-fashioning. She was trying to recreate herself, but she was doing it in a public way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you could say in the one sense that it failed, because at the end there isn't this newly fashioned self, Um, right? So it's not kind of like a traditional autobiography in that sense where you have this transformative movement moment and then you know who you are now and you're this new person. It's not like that. Um, but I think in that failure for us, you know, people looking back on that time, people trying to access the complexity both of women's liberation and the political context of the early 1970s, it's, inc- it's an incredibly... Um, fruitful text to kind of think about that complexity. But it seems like uh, because of her history that the self that she constructs or attempts, is it really a discarded self? Yeah. Well, there's more than one discarded self. Right, (laughs) multiple. Uh, I want to turn to something else that I I don't think you really talk about it too much in your book, but I think it's implied. Yeah. That the image of the women's liberation is this radical feminist as a lesbian uh, urban gorilla yeah. um, really created the image of the liberal feminism yeah. and sort of made that respectable. Yeah, yes, yes. So uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, that's um, – I think this is one of the reasons why we don't remember Kate Millett very much anymore because she's not that um, – 
So, uh, you know, the next book I'm working on um, looks is kind of more in the 1970s as a whole, and it looks at TV and film to try and think about the ways that these political movements get kind of mediated through the mass media so that we have different kind of imaginaries, kind of ideas about who women are, who men are, what politics is, that kind of thing. Um, and so what you see in the 1970s is like, Figures like, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show, for example, or Maud, which is a bit more interesting, um, who become like the stand-in mediated representatives of feminism that are kind of offer a, a fantasy of what it might be like to be a single career woman who lives an independent sexual life. And so they become the respectable figures of feminism. Um, uh, that we see on TV and we watch in film. And then, of course, you have this kind of breakdown of uh, the grassroots movements in the 70s, so that by the mid-1970s, most feminist organizing has become kind of community-based, so not operating on a national scale. Or it's become policy-based in terms of lobbying groups uh, in Washington, D.C. And so, like, in that sense, you could say that feminism loses its national profile, except when it appears within the context of orthodox political practices, you know, like policy. And so liberal feminism becomes kind of a popular figure and something that gets kind of reappropriated into orthodox politics. And the radical, messy part of feminism disappears. Yeah. And Betty Friedan was very much instrumental in that. Well, she was one of them. But in a way, she was never, she never managed to be as respectable as, you know. But she did try, she fed into it when she's talking about the lavender menace and and this, you know, these women are going to ruin the movement. You know, these radicals are going to make us look bad and we don't want to go there. Right. Uh, So so it's almost like the the women's movement had to kind of create this radical that they can just put off all the radical elements and to contain it within the women's liberation movement so they could keep the things that they thought they could actually sell. Yeah, but I don't think that I don't think that's what happened. Okay. So I think at, at the national level, like yes. if we watch TV, right. we have a sanitized liberal version of feminism. Or if we look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., we have this kind of more orthodox, kind of liberal feminist political action. But at kind of the local and the communal level, but also in terms of publishing, you have this other feminism that's happening and it's still happening. So people like, you know, the feminist bookstore movement, there's uh, someone writing right now on the feminist bookstore movement who should be published soon. Um, uh, happen, starts in the 1970s and continues up until the 1990s. Um, and you have, you know, there's all these kind of feminist institutions, uh, social spaces, um, publications, uh, some move into the academy and teach. So there's that, that kind of feminism continues all the way through. It's just not on our TV screens. Okay, so in a, I know what you're saying. It's still alive, but in a way, it was kind of contained in the, in the public imagination. Mm-hmm. It was contained within this radical sort of figure, right? So that it's almost like it's invisible. Yeah. So this is the other part of the feminist 
as lesbian figure is that she becomes this conduit or this shorthand notation that allows the movement in 1970 and for a period of time around 1970 to say things about itself. But since that moment, she's also become something else. She's become a way to forget that period, a way to dismiss it and a way to kind of hide what was actually a more complicated, kind of inventive, messy reality. And so she has that dual function in the book. So, you know, she becomes this screen figure now that hides the continuing and multivalent radicality of feminism from that period that continues. Right. So it's, a, it's a, the reason why you see young women today saying, I'm not a feminist, but. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're they respond, don't want to be that. They don't want to be that, which is, that yeah. image is still alive. Yes. And so it's, it's really made, uh, in a lot of ways, feminism invisible. Right. Or acceptable in certain forms. So that's the power. That's that's what I wanted to get at, the power of an emotional kind of rhetorical figure. Like when we remember things like, I don't know, the Watergate scandal, if we're old enough to remember that, right, the, these big events like 9-11, we don't remember them in the detail. We remember them in terms of these, these one-off images, these kind of like mental phrases. And that's the power of... Um, you know, the rhetorical figure that, you know, that we have to confront really when we're trying to understand political movements or political change. We don't understand through policy. We don't remember through policy. We don't remember through the detail of a theory. We remember through images and figures. And that was part of what I wanted to get at in the book. And that's a good and a bad thing. <laughs> Well, one of the things that uh, I thought about was, you make this point, is how this, uh, or how we remember, how we feel, and yeah. you really put a lot of emphasis on how we feel about women's liberation, right. uh, has infected and affected yeah. uh, the kind of scholarship that we're producing about right. that, about women's, this, the women's movement. Right. And tell me what you see some of the major problems with in scholarship dealing with feminism I, I see quite a few but one of you know one of the ones I see is that the the liberal story of liberal feminism is the one that is seems to be triumphant and always moving forward and uh, isn't this great you know women now can be you know CEOs or whatever yeah. uh, but it, it leaves so much out yeah yeah so I think that's changing a little bit and um, I think and partly it's just time um, but I think there is much more uh, of an interest now in thinking about politics in the 1970s more generally but definitely feminist politics in the 1970s um, and there's so there's a couple of books, Claire Hemming's Why Stories Matter, but also Jennifer Nash's recent book, um, The Black Body in Ecstasy. So these are kind of young scholars who are um, trying to rethink the relationship um, of present-day feminist interests, preoccupations within the academy primarily, 
not exclusively, and what happened in the 1970s. So I do think there is a move now to kind of say that we, that we need to think about that relationship. But I think that's a recent thing. I think, you know, through the 1990s and most of the 2000s, people were like marking themselves as a feminist or as a scholar, a queer study scholar against what happened in the 1970s, not as something that connects them to the 1970s. And, there are, you know, we can think about all the complicated reasons why that might be, but I think that's partly what happened, that, that to establish a certain kind of either legitimacy in a field in academia or uh, to establish what the different political stakes are in the present, there was a, a need to separate or disidentify from what happened in the 1970s. And lots of reasons for that. Yes, part, part of it is I see what part of what I see is that um, we're we're trying to define ourselves by what we're not, which we've talked about already. Yeah. And uh, or I'm a historian, so uh, trying to write a history based on almost a new myth of what who won. Yeah. And you have you know you have to look at what is excluded to really understand what ends up being included in feminist. History. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you're doing is you are trying to zero in on what has been excluded, what has been made invisible by the scholarship. Right, right. But I also wanted to kind of emphasize that, you know, when messy grassroots, somewhat spontaneous political movements like women's liberation emerge, which don't emerge in relation to an explicitly kind of coherent political agenda, right? They kind of try and figure that out as they're becoming a movement. When those kind of movements emerge, then part of what makes it difficult for us to um, know them, those movements historically, is precisely because they're so messy. And so you have to kind of, you know, figure out a relationship to it and the relationship to it is very much dependent on what is your concern in the present or it could be how it affected you, you know, personally. And so that's how we've tended to understand the historical relationship between the present and the past of women's liberation. And so what I really wanted to emphasize is that, um, you know, it it was, it's, it's a movement that we can't contain in a coherent story or a more obvious and kind of cruder way of putting it is that if we're going to understand women's liberation, we can't understand it as a story. It's not a story. Um, you know, it's an event which has multiple possible stories that we can create in order to interpret it, but it in and of itself is not a story. It reminds me of the Occupy movement more recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let me ask you, where do you think your book will be useful? And and what would you like the reader, both the the scholar, but just the general reader who's going to read your book, take away from this book? Well, um, I think it's going to be, I hope it's useful for um, students who are kind of, you know, thinking about what it means to be a feminist in the present, um, 
thinking about how how they do politics in the present, what they need, all those kind of things, but then kind of looking to the 1970s uh, in order to kind of see an example of an inventive grassroots spontaneous politics and see as both kind of offering them the evidence of something happening like that, but also offering them uh, a way to think about, you know, what might be done differently today. So in that sense, I think, you know, like students in um, feminist theory and feminist history classes, people like that. But I also really wanted it to be for people of my generation who, you know, came into identified as feminists and queer scholars and very much kind of of that generation that did that as through a kind of disidentification or a clear separation um, from the 1970s movement and women's liberation in particular to, to kind of open up uh, the kind of vibrancy and the complexity of that movement for us again, rather than as something that we have to distance ourselves from in order to be read as viable political or, you know, viable political subjects in the present. Okay, I have one uh, final question for you. What are you working on now? You kind of mentioned it before. Yeah. So um, is the book is kind of, it's, it's in its early stages, but the working title is 1970s, the 1970s mass culture and the event of post-war feminism. And so I want to look at um, a lot of mass media texts from throughout the 1970s, so from things like Mary Tyler Moore Show, more sitcoms, but then also um, films like Kramer vs. Kramer and the uh, Woody Allen films, so Manhattan and Annie Hall. Um, and I, I want to look at these as a kind of um, a body of evidence that allows us to think about how um, in the 1970s, uh, political constituencies are primarily mediated through the mass media. So they're not organic, uh, for the most part. They're not organic political movements. They're not movements that begin from a specific ideological point of view, but they're quite often mediated through the mass media, and the Occupy movement is one kind of way we might think about how that happened, or the Arab Spring, things like that. And so when you have a political movement that's mediated through the media, that means that we have different ideas of, you know, what it means to be political. So I wanted to kind of track that through uh, the examples in film and television. But more precisely, I wanted to kind of think about how the women as a political category changes in the 1970s precisely because um, it becomes a mass-mediated category for understanding a political identity or not. So strange things happened to women in popular culture in the 1970s. And I want to kind of think about how that is kind of an effect of a changing understanding of what women can do as a political category in that time. Wow, it's fascinating. Really interesting. Victoria, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. 
This is your host, Lillian Barger. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 